When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Could inflation be the solution? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington, and I'm joined today by Vincent Delawar, Director of Global Macro at StoneX. Before jumping in, I want to mention that right after today's show, we will have a live Ask Me Anything with Tony Greer at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. That's right after this show. You can watch both on YouTube and on our website at realvision.com. So stay tuned for that as well. Vincent, it's a pleasure to have you back here and to be with you once again on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Always a pleasure to be here. Good to catch up. It's also very timely. Uh, your work today is the basis of a Bloomberg story called Bull Case on Stock Crash Sees End of Fed Gifts to 1%. Uh, it's a really thought-provoking story uh, and one that I wanted to give you an opportunity to set up a little bit. It's based on some of your work, uh, a 2023 StoneX Global Macro Report called The Bright Side of the Bear and the Blessing of Pain. Yes, um, it's been something that I've been thinking for, for a long time and something that's very should not be controversial, but it's it's always very controversial whenever I mention it, is that the wealth effect, which has been kind of the religion of the Fed since, you know, I think a speech by Bernanke in 2010, that, you know, right. this is how stimulate the economy with the wealth effect benefits the wealthy. I, I really don't see how that could be seen as controversial and how engineering a high asset price economy, which seems to have been uh, the goal of monetary policy for um, at least 20 years uh, exacerbates uh, inequalities. And I believe after, once this process is running course, it becomes detrimental to growth and it sends the economy in this very low growth, uh, very high asset price equilibrium, which is ultimately unsustainable. And in my view, in my framework, inflation is the... Uh, um, the genie that will come out of the bottle, the deus ex machina that will help us go from that paradigm, the paradigm of the new normal, low growth, low productivity, low birth rates, low household formation, high inequality, uh, millennial and Gen Z are feeling getting squeezed to a new, perhaps more sustainable environment, something that would look a lot more like the early 80s. And in order to get from where we are today to where we should be in this kind of happier future, we need a decade of forced deleveraging. And inflation is, in my opinion, if it's moderate inflation, not 
Argentina saw inflation, but you know, five, seven percent inflation is the least politically painful way to achieve that transition. Vincent, it's such an engaging idea and one that we haven't heard here on this program, this notion uh, that this has the positive ability. You know, many people would cite the same facts that you did uh, and then build a bear case off it. But to hear you building a bullish case uh, for economic growth and for distributional issues, really quite impressive. I wanted to just jump right in here and give folks a flavor of this report because I think you stated it so well in the report. I'm just going to read from it. Uh, this is the bright side of the bear and the blessings of pain. This again from January 2023. Quote, in markets, understanding that losses are natural and fundamental, fundamentally healthy is a sign of discernment. By clearing out the speculative excess of bubbles, bear markets regenerate the economy force long postponed changes and pave the way for more prosperous times. This report will illustrate five ways in which the brutal bear market of 2022 is curing the global economy from secular stagnation and the sterile addictions of the 2010s. And I just wanted to make this point here because this is an important point that you raise uh, in the very next sentence, quote, the 2022 bear market and wage growth finally shrank the asset price to labor ratio the forever bull market enriched the wealthy the idle and the old at the expense of the poor the working and the young lower asset prices will support sustainable growth by allowing the young to buy homes and compound wealth at a higher rate uh, boy it's no surprise that bloomberg jumped on that uh, story it really is a compelling point well thank you um and I, I, again, I don't think it should be that controversial, uh, especially because this is the story. Uh, the boomers experienced that and benefited from that themselves. I mean, when 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 the boomers came of age in the 70s, uh, we had um, a very high inflation, um, something that felt horrible at the time. You know, the the great American malaise in the, in the word of Jimmy Carter. Um, blackouts, uh, stagflation, all that. And, you know, it felt bad. But if, if you take kind of a broader perspective on what happened during the 70s, uh, it was actually quite beneficial. Uh, it allowed boomers to buy stocks. I mean, at the beginning of the decade, we had the, the nifty 50s. These were the, the fang stocks of the time. Uh, right. They were tra trading from like 90 times earnings, right? So no one could buy them. By the end of the decade, they were trading at nine, 10 times earnings. By the end of the decade, uh, you could buy uh, long-term treasuries at double-digit yield, uh, and you could compound wealth. Uh, you could buy a house for you know, a fraction of what they cost today. Now, of course, you paid a bit more in terms of interest rate, uh, well, quite a bit more, uh, but wages went up very rapidly during this decade. So this was a decade of uh, distribution of wealth um, that allowed uh, for the the, the a next um, accumulation of wealth in the 80s and 90s, the great bull markets and so forth. And what I'm hoping is happening now is that it's that the same phenomenon is happening for millennial and Gen Zers. We've been uh, really suffering from this kind of, let's call that the boomer glaciation, right? A period of constantly rising asset prices and flat uh, minimum wage. I think it's been, what, 30 years since we raised the minimum wage. So the one chart that I like to show, I, I don't know if we'll mention it here, is the in fact, uh, I think we've got it queued up uh, and ready. This is uh, something that really struck me, the price share of the S&P 500 index in work hours. And I just want to read the quote for people uh, to set this up because really, I thought this was just a striking, striking statistic that you pointed out here. Quote, the chart shows 
various wealth to income ratios effectively measuring how long workers need to toil to buy one share in the S&P 500 index. For example, in 1980, one week at the minimum wage of $3.10 bought a share in the S&P 500 index. At the December 2021 close of 4,766, it took workers four months of minimum wages to buy one share in the S&P 500 index. Let's talk about that for a minute because it really is a, a quite striking statistic. By the way, I should say the S&P 500 here uh, today closed out the day at 4,117 for those keeping score at home. Uh, it's a staggering number. Essentially what you're saying uh, is that, you know, it's one week uh, versus, uh, you know, whatever the number is there, the plug number, 12. It's a 12x rise in the valuation of the S&P 500 relative to the wage uh, component of the economy. And that's just that's just devastating. Yeah, and, and I think what it captures really is the, um, the anxiety and the angst of the millennial and Gen Z, the feeling that no matter what I do, the deck is stacked again against me and right. I cannot make it. The opportunities that were offered to my parents are not offered to me. It's not because, you know, we eat avocado toast or, you know, we spend too much time on TikTok. Uh, the reality is that it was a lot easier to acquire wealth uh, and build wealth and compound that wealth at a high real rate of return in the, in the early 80s than it was today. It was easier to buy a house uh, and somehow um, you know, we need to fix that. Again, we need to think of this in terms of a generational trade-off. I mean, you can think of the young generation with the exception of, you know, the trust fund kids at NYU as uh, <laughs> asset poor and labor rich, right? If you are young, all you have is my time and my labor. You're, you're time rich, labor rich, and asset poor. And you're going to go to the marketplace and you're going to trade uh, your time and your labor for people who are running out of both, typically retirees. Uh, and with that, you're going to try to acquire assets. Conversely, when you're old, you become time poor. Uh, we're all mortal. Uh, and and labor poor. Uh, you may be retired or you may no longer be able to, to master the tools to work for. So you were trying to convert your financial asset that you acquired in your life into the labor of others. And that ratio that we measure, the one that it's been multiplied by 12 in 40 years, is the term of trace between generations. Uh, and what the rise of this ratio tells you is that at some point become unsustainable. And I think this is exactly where we're getting in, in the late 2010. You get to a point when uh, people stop making babies because they see, well, you know, it's too expensive to send them to school, uh, university, buy houses. Uh, young generation can never get to the point where they can buy a house and start making kids. So you start having this uh, negative impact on growth, which is kind of what we saw for, for 40 years, where trend growth keeps falling and falling uh, because the young generation is, is, uh, is stuck in place and is no longer growing. And in a way, how do you solve that? How do you get a ratio to go down? Well, you reduce the numerator. Numerator is asset price and you increase the denominator. The denominator is wages. What happened in 2022? Precisely that. Your numerator shrank by 20, 22%, depending on which index we're looking at. And then you, your denominator, a wage growth, increased by 5%. But again, 5% is an average. Look specifically at uh, wages for the young, the uneducated, minorities, paid hourly. That was going much faster, 7 to 8%. So behind the scene, we are seeing this great rebalancing happen. And if I were in charge of public policy, I would not go against it. Uh, 
I mean, I would try to avoid the most destructive impact of effect of inflation. Like you don't want inflation above nine percent, but I think that's something we 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 avoided. You want the bear market to be somewhat orderly, uh, but that process is fundamentally healthy, and it, it's is going to ultimately help to rebuild American growth and the American middle class. Vincent, I think you've got yourself a best-selling book here if you write this up. Uh, you can call it, It's Not the Damned Avocado Toast. Uh, you know, there's something about uh, folks of a certain generation who just seem to love uh, to lecture millennial and Gen Z uh, folks about the challenges that they have. But it's not the avocado toast. It's not Tinder culture that's preventing household formation. Uh, it's these very real, very material challenges that you document here in this report. It's something that people feel viscerally, emotionally. Uh, what I think makes this report so great is that you give the statistics, the data points around it. I'm just going to read one more quote here. Uh, this again, if we could put that chart back up, Gabrielle, I don't know if we can bring that back up on the screen. Uh, but the 2022 everything bear market caused a rare decrease in the cost of assets in terms of labor. Stocks dropped by 20% while average hourly earnings grew by 5%. So workers' stock purchasing power increased by about 25%. Furthermore, these gains were strongest for the workers who suffered the most under the old regime. The young, the least educated, the poor, and minorities. As shown in the chart below, young, non-white, and hourly paid workers enjoyed record wage growth last year. Gains have moderated a bit in recent months, but job switchers still enjoy pay raises of 7.7% versus 5.5% for job stayers. As long as this kind of arbitrage persists, the great resignation slash renegotiation will probably continue and labor market should remain tight which is a great thing, particularly uh, for those workers, Vincent. Yes, um, and, and, and fortunately, this is something where we keep continue to see strength, strength that surprises investors. Like the, the latest job number was, was really a blowout, right? I mean, we had 500 plus, uh, 500,000 plus job creation consensus for, for 150. We have jobless claims um, uh, falling when people expected them to rise. Uh, so we are seeing this process and and I think that is kind of the if you listen to the Fed, the message is very confused, it's very blurry now. I mean, on, on one week they're like, oh, we're gonna, you know, we 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 we're gonna raise and keep them there. And then suddenly last week, oh no, I'm cool with the I'm cool with the rally, just just do whatever you want. And I think that speaks to the Fed confusion because on on the one hand, um they um you know, they are worried about the past mistake. They're worried about the inflation, uh, but they see it fall down. And they also see that what's fundamentally going on in the labor market is a good thing. It's a good thing. I mean, you want to have a tight labor market for 40 years. Uh, and the U.S. was not so bad. I mean, as, as you probably heard, I'm from France. I mean, growing up in Europe, unemployment, especially youth unemployment, was was like a Damocles sword across every, on top of everybody's head. Like in Italy or Spain, you'd have 50% youth unemployment rate, people staying at their parents until age 45. Right. Um, right. You want, you having a hot labor market is fundamentally a good thing. Uh, and, and I think part of the, the, the internal debate at the Fed is, do we really want to kill the labor market? And how much pain will we have to inflict in order to do that? And for what? What is the end goal? I mean, if, if, if we kill the labor market, basically we have to throw the economy into a massive recession. We're gonna kill the stock market as well. So you're, you're killing the, the rich, the, the old and the wealthy, the, the boomers, uh, and you're also hammering the young. And what do you get in return? 
going back to 2% inflation? I mean, what is the 2% target? Does it really matter? I mean, what's wrong with having 3 4%? Anyway, inflation is falling already, right? So I think that this is why Powell is feeling confused. Like in the first six months of the hike, it was clear, I'm going to hike, hike, hike every meeting, 50, 75, whatever. And now, now that inflation is rolling over, the trade-off becomes more apparent. Do I really want to kill the labor market? And I hope he does not. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, you know what's so fascinating to me about this conversation is the tendency that people seem to have for, you know, conflating or mistaking or for whatever reason attributing uh, to sort of vague cultural causes, uh, things that are just so clearly uh, arithmetically demonstrable. I'm Sicilian, I can say this. So you hear that when people talk about, you know, people, you know, guys live at home until they're 40 in Italy and it's it's because of mama's spaghetti. It's not. It's because of the youth unemployment rate at near 50%. I mean, these are, we always seem to mistake collectively as a culture, uh, whether it's on the left or on the right, uh, this tendency to attribute these things to these these cultural changes rather than the these very clear mathematically demonstrable points that you make. I mean, these numbers about the changes in the price of assets relative to wages are just striking. Yeah, no, it, it's easier to, I think, yeah, two reasons for what you describe. Uh, uh, one, it's, it's more fun, right? Oh, you, you make fun of the uh, the Italian mama's boy who, you know, stays in Italy right. pasta. And then you make fun of the millennial, you know, spending all his money on, on fancy coffee instead of, you know, right. saving the boomers, even though I don't think boomers, whatever. But <laughs> well, so that there's a fun thing. And then there is a a, a personal responsibility aspect, which which, which sometimes I don't like. It, it, it's, it's almost... Um, making poor people feel guilty for being poor, right? If you are poor, it is only on you. It's because of your, your avocado toast and not because right. of all these structural forces, which we have engineered. I mean, there was a choice to, to be made. I mean, I, I, I would put the, you know, the late 90s, the, the bailout of LTCM was probably the first time we saw that. Right. Uh, then after 9-11, after bringing, bringing the Fed funds rate to 1% when probably that was excessive, trying to basically re- uh, um, engineer bubbles on top of bubble. Every time a bubble pops, we we engineer another bubble. So the the the, um, the internet bubble pops. How are we going to fix it instead of kind of letting it do its thing? Which well would have been a great option, right? I mean, Pets.com was not a good company, and it's it was good for the market to clear that out. No, what we did is we got rates really low so that we we engineer the. Um, the real estate bubble. Uh, and then when that popped in 2008, uh, we went full speed with QE and we engineered an everything bubble. And same thing after uh, uh, um, after COVID. And at some point, there is a cost to this. There is a cost. And the right. cost is that young people cannot acquire assets. Growth starts to slow. Participation starts to drop. Um, something else that happened in 2021. I mean, one of the mistakes the Fed did when it, you know they started you know buying all these mortgage-backed securities and, 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 and treasuries, the price of everything shot up to the moon and a lot of people say, hey, I don't need to work anymore. 
We have about 3 million extra people who retired in 2021 because of the everything rally. So you could see that solely using the wealth effect as a single tool for economic policy comes with severe side effects, which are born primarily on the young, the poor, the working, and benefit primarily the idle, uh, the rich, uh, and the old. And it's time for this to change. And I believe we have started this process in 2022, and it's going to play out over the next decade. Yeah, and, and by the way, I'm not I'm not taking a policy position here. Obviously, these are very difficult trade-offs from a macroeconomic standpoint, uh, balancing the dual mandate of the Fed, figuring out where the the you know the component of uh, of of unstable prices uh, causes more pain or more damage uh, than uh, what we're seeing in problems in the labor market. Uh, but you know, at a certain point, you kind of have to say, like, enough with the damned avocado toast stories. I mean. You know, look, I have I have friends whose whose parents own perfectly normal, perfectly nice uh, houses built in the 60s and 70s that are worth 1.2, 1.3 million dollars, and the the cabinets uh, are the same from the Carter administration. But that doesn't matter because when someone comes and buys the house, they're going to knock it down anyway. These are real structural challenges with the economy uh, that it's not something that you can somehow uh, thrift your way out of. Hard work and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps isn't going to do that uh, when you're you know when you're 35 years old and and paying rent because the houses that are within driving distance of where you work, for example, are just completely, you know, they're, they're, they're 40X your salary. Yeah, and, and I think broadly speaking, that is the, the biggest economic problem, I would say for the next 10 years is going to be the transfer of assets from boomers to millennial and Gen Z. Um, so, you know, boomer, the median boomer is turning 64 this year, that's the age when, you know, start to retire. And, and the oldest boomers are in their um, 70s and they're gonna start to pass. Um, they own a disproportionate amount of, of the wealth in this country. This right. wealth needs passed down to millennial and Gen Zers. The problem is that millennial and Gen Zers do not have the income to purchase. So the, the market's not clearing. Uh, the, the, the price is that, and then the, the income is another number that is not sufficient. So somehow in the course of the next 10 years, We'll need to meet the two because, I mean, it will have boomers will not really live forever, and at some point, millennial agencies will need to buy some homes. The pro the question is, how do we do this process? Do we do it violently, uh, or do we do it somewhat smoothly and peacefully by uh, reducing the real value of assets, which is what inflation does, and inflating the nominal value of wages, which is what inflation also does if it's the right kind of inflation, kind of bottom-up inflation, labor market-driven inflation. And I believe this process is, is has started after COVID. COVID accelerated a lot of these trends, like, like, you know, COVID accelerated a bunch of stuff. It also accelerated that, the great resignation, people start to work from home. So as a result, uh, that, that redistributes a little bit the, the real estate wealth around the country. Um, and, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing that's happening. Yeah, you know, a couple of important points here. First of all, obviously, uh, it's a matter of degree when uh, all when all item inflation is running at 8.6% on an annualized basis. Clearly, it's destructive to the economy, and we don't want to minimize that here because inflation does carry catastrophic risk, particularly when it becomes uncontrolled. Uh, but, you know, wherever you fall on this spectrum, wherever you fall in terms of the, the trade-offs for these very difficult questions, it, it begins by having question, uh, conversations like these and asking these questions. I can see right now, for example, I'm looking at the YouTube chat, which is just blowing up around 
around this conversation, uh, a huge amount of engagement. And also I'm looking at the Real Vision website uh, where folks are also jumping in with lots of questions uh, and lots of points. Uh, it really is a topic that clearly has touched a nerve with a lot of our viewers here, uh, which is why we have these conversations. But I want to shift gears here a little bit. As fascinating as this sort of broader conversation is about the macroeconomic framework, uh, based on your analysis of where we are right now, what is the implication for asset prices, for investors, for folks who are out there uh, thinking about what this means uh, for how they're going to make investment decisions? Um, so it's a bit paradoxical, but I think my view has been generally more bullish on the consensus on the economy and more bearish on, on asset prices. Uh, and. And I think broadly speaking, that was correct in, in 2022. Um, you know, we had an economy that, that performed quite well. I mean, even, you know, Q4 GDP was close to 3%. You know, if you look at the account of Fed now, it seems that GDP is also going to print pretty high. Uh, we did not have the recession that we were expecting. And, and I think that is because, it's, again, the labor market remains tighter, wage gains are stronger than people think, and that's rebalancing is healthy. So I think... Uh, on the economy side, it's it's generally a positive news. I think hopefully this is a transition towards a higher growth period where we see more investment in homes, more household formation, uh, more rapid wage gains. Now the the offset to that is um, to some extent the economy is a zero sum game. I mean, if you give more to labor, you have to take it from somewhere, and that somewhere is going to be capital. Uh, so I think the, uh, the the impact is going to be uh, uh, quite quite bad on margins, uh, mm. something we've seen already, right? I mean, we, I mean, one stat that fascinates me is, um, you know, we have nominal GDP growing at close to 10% right now, 7% inflation, 3% GDP. Uh, and still you see S&P 500 earnings down 5%, 7% X energy. And then you have analysts who are telling you that by the end of next year, that's gonna be, growth is gonna plummet, but EPS is gonna explode. <laughs> um, no. What's really going on is margin erosion. I think it was hidden a little bit by inflation because initially there's inflation illusion, right? Because the, you don't write off your, your oil inventory and your, 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 your fixed assets are still at the old cost. It seems to boost profits, but the more you settle on this high inflation environment, you start to realize that margins are getting eaten. And I think they will keep getting eaten because the cost of everything's going up, right? Every input's going up. The cost of energy is higher than it was last year. The cost of labor is only higher and the cost of money as measured by interest rate is much higher. So you'll see your margins come down. And then the other thing that that will do for um, asset price in general is at some point you will need long-term interest rates to catch up with the reality that inflation is more likely to be four or five percent than one or two what's being priced right now. Uh, so as you get these higher rates, uh, you write down the value of, uh, of long duration assets. Unfortunately for, for the US stock market, it's a very high duration index. Uh, so we'll go back to kind of the trade of 2022 where uh, your um, super speculative hyper growth uh, big tech stocks are getting hit the most. And on the contrary, the short duration plays, the value, the energy, maybe some healthcare as well. The banks benefit from that, from that environment of, of, of rapid um, uh, high inflation and rapid growth. 
Gosh, I have so many questions. I want to ask about fixed income in just a second. Uh, but let me ask you this. Maybe you've got me in an optimistic mood. Uh, you mentioned this idea of the trade-offs in terms of growth uh, between the labor, the wage and labor share uh, of the economy versus the uh, earnings component of the economy. Uh, is there some possibility here where you can have this kind of Goldilocks scenario where you get growth in nominal GDP, uh, kind of essentially pushing the, the Pareto optimality production possibility frontier further uh, by growing the pie rather than making uh, exclusively allocative decisions. Yeah, I think that's the hope. And and sometimes it's possible. I think we, we need to wait and see how it plays out. I mean, the productivity ultimately is, is what will determine whether we can get to that happy scenario where we can rebalance, but because the pie is growing, we, we rebalance without taking from anyone, right? <laughs> um, uh, kind of like I would say when it was in the 50s in the 60s right. uh, when you had this you know two percent productivity growth uh, we had uh, all this innovation uh, the, the interstate highway uh, the GI bill um, uh, the electrification the, the, the spread of combustion engine aviation all these big innovation that meant that we could have both um, a, a level of, of prosperity for the middle class I mean this is the, the emergence of the American middle class after the war and right. also strong stock market, strong profits, strong growth. That is that is the, and also, and, and it's something we haven't discussed yet, um, uh, deleveraging of the economy, right? That's why the, the high growth of the 50s and the 60s, it took your, your debt to GDP ratio, which went crazy after World War II, and then it went away because the economy was going so much, you know, so rapidly that uh, the GDP was going faster than the debt and, and that shrank. That is the happy scenario. Um, we'll see, I, I'm not as optimistic, uh, if you look at trends in productivity growth, they've been uh, very dismal. Um, so last year, productivity fell by 2%. This was the first time productivity fell since, interestingly, 1974. Uh, so again, going back to the 70s. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And so were, were, there, were there a similar set of, of causal drivers of that back uh, during the Carter administration versus where we are today? Yeah, um, I think the, the consensus, uh, especially if you read the Fed papers uh, about the topic, and I've, I've been reading a lot about the 70s, is that the 70s is uh, a world apart, right? It's, and and you'd understand that if you were the Fed chairman, you, you would want to suggest that this will never happen again because it's a nightmare scenario for the Fed, right? Stagflation, Phillips curve moving, you you know, like, so they, they really insist on on the peculiarity of the 70s. They say, well, you know, we had these these old shocks from OPEC, and there was the Vietnam War, uh, then there was the food prices were going up, and then you had the big labor union that were driving pay increases, uh, and you had a Fed chairman that didn't know what he wanted, that, what to do, and on top of that, you had a, a president that was bullying him, um, uh, Nixon was, was bullying Arthur Burns, and, and that's why it happened, but it will never happen again. Um, if I look at it objectively, I'm not so sure things are that different right now. I mean, energy shocks, obviously we have them. Uh, it's not just Russia. I think that the green transition will mean that we're going to have to 
at least initially invest more for the same energy output. So kind of same story of the 70s. Food prices, you can certainly see that happen as well. Uh, we have the, because of the fertilizer crisis, you can think that you know this this food inflation is going to keep going. Uh, and then yes, we don't have unions anymore, uh, but we have a very um, profound shift, I think, in labor relation. I mean, you see uh, unionization at Amazon, you see strikes all over the country, uh, you see the the Gen Z. Uh, uh, resigning or doing the, the, the quiet quitting, right? Uh, you have kind of a similar, I think, shift in values among the young generation. Right. And I think that shift in values is driven by the fact that they have more power. Um, you know, you have two boomers retiring for every one Gen Zer entering the labor force. So the Gen Zer can tell the boomers, hey, no, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer your slave. Like, let me, I don't want to work weekends. And, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, that's a, that's going to be a very popular message uh, with uh, Gen Zers. But uh, I wanted to just point out two things, and I, I know we have to move on. I'm going to get yelled at for running too long, but this is such a great conversation, Vincent. Uh, first, obviously, there are distributional issues within the set of goods uh, within the market basket for inflation, some of which is much more painful uh, to workers than others. I mean, I can speak from personal experience that the sticker shock uh, of going to a grocery store is miserable, and it is something that is really hurting workers. Uh, second point, I don't think we have time to bring the chart up on the screen, uh, but I am also looking at the federal debt, total public debt as a percentage of GDP data series on the Fed, Fred, data, St. Louis Fed website uh, right now. And it just, you can just see, it just rises hockey stick beginning uh, uh, with the global financial crisis uh, circa 2007-2008 era. Uh, and that, of course, is a challenge and a potential driver of inflation uh, that could have some uh, impact uh, and could get potentially out of control. So let's see if you could just address those two points really quickly so uh, we can then... Right. Okay, so on the inflation, um, I actually reconstructed you know, the CPI is an average and there's a lot of stuff that goes in and we've all become a lot more familiar with, you know, the OER and the way they compute shelter. But what matters is it is a statistical construct that is an average supposedly for the urban, uh, urban consumer. Um, I think there's a generational component to the CPI as well um, because you have a very different consumption basket if you are young or if you are old. If you are young, you're going to pay a third of your salary on rent Typically, you don't own your rent. Uh, you're going to have to pay a lot of money for college, and you're going to have to pay uh, maybe another 10% of your income on health insurance. And these three uh, sub indices of CPI, shelter, educate, higher education, um, uh, healthcare, and then childcare if you have young kids, have already been rising at 5% a year for 20 years. So I would argue that the millennial and the Gen Zs have been living in a 5% CPI world for already 40 years. Now, the reason we have 2% CPI is because on the other side of the, of the, on the rest of the index, on the good side, we had all the cheap stuff from China, which the boomers buy, right? Uh, so the boomers, they don't have to pay for their own, they own it. Uh, they don't have to pay for higher education, they're done with college, uh, and they don't have to pay for healthcare because they got Medicare. So we were already, I, I would have wished that the BLS would have reported two sets of number, and that would have been very cruel for the millennials say, okay, for boomers, inflation is negative again this month. Now, unfortunately, for anyone who is under the age of 25, inflation is 6%. That is what has been going on for 40 years. So that's one of the reasons why I am not that horrified at whatever the CPI is right now, 6%, uh, 6% inflation, because effectively that's what uh, millennials and Gen Zers have been living under. So that's the first thought. Second thought was about debt to GDP, and, and I think that's an important one. So let me address it. Um, so 
um, basically over the long term, if you want to keep a constant ratio of government debt to, to, to GDP, uh, which you kind of need to, right? Otherwise, you just keep building and building, building. Uh, that means that your, your deficit to GDP must equal the rate of nominal growth of the economy. Uh, so if you have, like we had, I would argue in the past decade, the government deficit was about 3% of GDP. Um, you can get there uh, by having 2% uh, inflation, 1% growth. So that's that's fine. That's an equilibrium. It doesn't really rise. Uh, now, if, uh, and I believe it is the case, we enter in an era of structurally higher deficit because you have to pay for the retirement of the boomers and you have to pay for the healthcare expense of the boomers. And on top of that, you have to build the military out of scratch, which is the case of Europe. Suddenly, Europe is waking up in, in horror. Germany, oh my God, we have to spend 3% of our GDP in defense, which we haven't done for 40 years. Uh, and at the same time, we have to pay for you know soaring healthcare expenses. That means that structurally, your deficit to GDP is going to be maybe 8%. Now, how do you avoid a debt crisis when you have deficit to GDP of 8%? The answer is very simple. You need a numerator to grow by 8% as well. Uh, how do you get there? I would argue that 6% inflation, 2% real growth is a great way to do that. You can deleverage the economy by having high nominal growth. And we don't have a choice unless we are willing to cut into entitlement or defense spending, which I don't see anyone wanting to do. I mean, no one's going to touch social security and social security is inflation indexed anyway. So you can't really go at it or cutting military spending. You're going to see these bigger and bigger deficits. So how do you want to solve it? I mean, do you want to default on the debt? Uh, it's much better to let go of inflation for a couple of years. Uh, just when I was feeling optimistic, Vincent, you go and mention these real world trade offs. And these are obviously very difficult. People have experienced just tremendous pain uh, with inflation, particularly workers, particularly folks at the lower end of the economic income distribution. Uh, so those are real challenges. But, you know, to your point, obviously, what we're talking about here today, these real generational challenges around asset prices, uh, particularly around uh, housing. Uh, which is, uh, has risen sort of peri passu with the, the right of, rate of asset inflation in uh, publicly traded uh, equity markets. I wanted to get in just one question uh, here. Uh, Ralph Humphrey actually asks a question uh, that I was ask, asking uh, earlier, uh, but maybe if you could boil it down in a very concise way. Ralph wants to know, what is your investment thesis? What is your investment view based on this thesis? I would say that the, the overwhelming, that one, one trade would be short duration. Um, what, what does that you, you mean know, for people who may not be familiar with the terminology? Um, it means that you want to invest in assets with uh, uh, a high tangible value and uh, where you get your investment back fairly quickly, as opposed to assets like, uh, um, you know, some some uh, find the sky tech stock where you know, maybe in 10 years, they will just, you know, they will have losses for the first 10 years. But after that, oh my God, it's going to be so wonderful, right? The opposite of the vision fund, if you will. Uh, that, so that, that, sounds means, like, that sounds like long XLE, short XLK. To, to some extent, yes. But I mean, yeah, um, I, I would put the banks in that short duration basket, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not just energy. I, I think healthcare uh, is also an area that will benefit from a lot of these changes that I highlight. Uh, but in general, yes, there would be a value of a growth element. Uh, there will be a, a pro-inflation bias. So you want to have uh, things that benefit from inflation, things like uh, miners, uh, maybe some emerging markets, maybe some commodities. 
Uh, and also cash. Uh, cash, uh, especially after the rate hikes that we've seen. Um, hey, you know, I mean, close to 5% on a two-year note. I mean, this is, I, I mean, I, by the way, I, I'm an inflationist and I, I, I do not question the fact that inflation, inflation is going to fall. Uh, arithmetically, it's going to fall. So we do have positive real rates in the U.S., for the first time in a very long time, you have tips. I mean, even a two-year tip is going to give you two-year, um, sorry, two percent in real inflation-adjusted um, uh, income, uh, and, and that really raises the bar for everything else. I mean, this is an option that did not exist five years ago, uh, and I think the rest of the world needs to reprice to adjust for that. And and as this happens, you'll be very happy that you have some cash. I mean, you don't necessarily have to keep it in cash, right? I mean, you, you can buy like short-term T-bills or things like that so that you get compensated for it. But as we see more dislocation in the rest of the market, as this repricing takes place, you want to remain liquid. Yeah, so we, I guess we could add to that short XLF, long XLV. Uh, I'm looking at the comments right now, which are just flying by. Uh, Bonito makes an interesting point. He writes, uh, the answer is metals, gold, silver, and lead. LOL. Uh, you know, this is in some ways, uh, it's sort of an interesting story. Obviously, we have we uh, have seen a lot of action in gold uh, lightly. So much more to talk about. I wish we had more time. Uh, Vincent, you've got to come back and do this again. This was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, it was awesome. I, I was I always enjoy going there. And uh, yeah, let's, let's speak again soon. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tomorrow, we'll be back with Jared Dillian. See you then. Have a great night, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.